One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Brittany Clinton, as usual with the news. And then I sit down with Marissa Brandron, who has actually been on the podcast before. A while ago, she was here to talk to us about postal banking. And Senator Gillibrand's team heard that episode, and then she introduced a piece of legislation into Congress from that episode with Marissa. And she is back because she's our resident expert on all things related to the wealth gap, about what we do about inequity with regard to wealth, and what we do moving forward. Now, the advice for this week comes from a conversation I had with one of my best friends, and he has a three-year-old and a two-year-old, and he was talking about how Sesame Street this season is all about your emotions, and it has created a common language in their house about frustration and sadness and happiness in a way that he hadn't even anticipated, but because they're all home together, his three-year-old can now be like, what's your emotion, daddy? And he was like, it actually has been really powerful to see, and it made me think about how with some of the people that we're closest to, we don't have a common language for how we discuss our emotions, how we sort of share the stories that matter the most to us, how we share our most intimate feelings, uh, the things that we love, the things that hurt us. And it is a reminder too that so much of the work of being in relationship with other people is about acknowledging our own feelings and then also figuring out how we communicate those feelings to other people and also making sure that we listen when people do the same with us. So it was uh, really powerful to think about Sesame Street as like a reminder to create common language to people around us about uh, the world we experience, about the way that we feel our way through the world and about the things we need. Let's go. Hey y'all, it's Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Packetti on all social media here with some good news for a change. I felt like we could all use a little bit of that right now. And so I wanted to make sure that my news for the week was something that hopefully put a smile on your face and gave you a bit of information if it is useful for your life. I want to tell you about the creation of a young woman named J.J. Patton. It was actually inspired by her father, Antoine. When she was three, her father, Antoine, went to prison for gun possession. And during her early years, she started to learn where her father really was and discover just how difficult it was to maintain a relationship with him because communicating with him was difficult. It was often far spaced out and it was, of course, very, very expensive. In 2013, back at that time, a 15-minute phone call from a New York prison cost 72 cents, which was not an astronomical sum. But it was often something that J.J.'s mom simply could not afford in the family budget at the time. But her father, Antoine, while he was incarcerated, was able to benefit from the Bard Prison Initiative, which actually provides free college courses in New York prisons. He decided to take advantage of a computer science course and learned how to code. Because he came out of being incarcerated in 2014 with the skills to code, he decided to start the Photo Patch Foundation. So the way this worked was that he created a website where kids would type letters and upload their pictures to their incarcerated parent. Then Antoine and his team would take the photos and the letters, they would print them, package them, and mail them. Now what this allowed families to do was often avoid the fees that they would assume by sending their loved one's letters when they were incarcerated. Prison telecommunications companies can often charge 50 cents just for a one-page letter and an additional 
$12.50 per photo. Photopatch was doing all of this for free so that parents and children could stay in touch with their loved ones without the additional financial burden. So JJ, who was 10 at the time, started to watch her father doing all of this coding work and got curious. Antoine is the one who taught her how to code, and eventually they were doing it together. She said, I was finally bonding with my dad in the article that Teen Vogue wrote this month. JJ told her dad that Photopatch needed to actually become a mobile app if this thing was going to work. She said everybody is on their phone. It's way easier for them to take a picture and type a letter right there. My dad said I should try it. So she spent hours experimenting with the code and getting it just right when she was only 12 years old. And now the Photopatch app has been downloaded more than 10,000 times. She says that Photopatch has between 1,000 and 2,000 users. And with family prison visits at many prisons and jails canceled indefinitely, the numbers are steadily rising every single day. Look, y'all, in these times, these communications are ever more important. These canceled in-person visits leave so many families with no choice but to rely on things like video visits and phone calls, but they are far more expensive than even back in 2013 when JJ was experiencing the incarceration of her father, Antoine. Right now, a 20-minute video visit or phone call can be $4.80 or as much as $24. There are some states that are offering a limited number of free phone calls, but those certainly are not enough to meet the needs. So apps like Photopatch are really helping ensure that the connection is made. And I think that this is such a powerful example of, frankly, something that President Obama tried to remind us of when he gave these two powerful commencement addresses over the weekend. Look, he reminded us that so often the adults that we've been told are in charge often don't know what they're doing. And we know that we are reminded of that every single day during this administration. So we save us. We don't always have to look to who is in charge to get us free. Sometimes we have to look to the left or to the right, or in JJ's case, in the mirror, to get what we need done to make sure that we have what we need. I'm so inspired by your story, JJ. Thank you for taking what your father Antoine created, turning it into an app, and making sure that families can stay more and more connected by never having to experience incarceration in the first place. Hope that good news carries y'all through the week. What's going on, y'all? It's the news. This is Clint, at Clint Smith III. And this is Sam Siangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Dre at DIY on Twitter. Brittany's not here this week, but we love Brittany. See you next week. Shout out to B. You know, we are in the middle of graduation season. And usually May is honestly might be my favorite month of the year. Like the end of May, second half of May and beginning of June. If I could make that into a month, it would be my favorite month because it's the end of school graduation. It's like, even if you're still in school, it's just kind of, you're just rolling towards summer. You're just trying to get there. And then it's the very beginning of summer, which in my mind is the best part of summer because it's just this, you know, it's open for all the possibility that summer affords, especially I'm thinking a lot of this is like nostalgia as a young person. Um, Cause you know, when you're an adult, you got to still go to work, but I still love the season. Obviously we are in a different moment and scenario, but people are still graduating. And people are graduating virtually, and people are graduating in social distanced ways. 
I'm experiencing my own graduation. It's in two weeks from now, um, and obviously it will not be in person. And so thinking about what this moment means after six years of grad school to like have imagined this graduation being a certain way, but then recognizing that I'm gonna be sitting in front of my computer. Um, They haven't sent me a robe or anything. At some point they say we're gonna have our in-person graduation. I guess maybe they'll allow us to come for the 2021 graduation. But it is wild, you know, like, you know, I feel for all the high school seniors. I feel for all the college seniors. I'm an adult with like kids and a family. And like, I wanted this graduation, but I'll be all right. But I do feel for folks who lost out on prom and senior night and all those things that make those last moments so special. And having been a high school teacher, I just know how 17, 18 year olds are kind of like, oh, this doesn't mean a lot to me. I don't care. It's whatever. And some of them mean it. Some of them don't. But it always means so much to the families. And so as much as I feel for the kids, I also feel for so many of the families who who have worked so hard to make these moments possible for these young people and to not have the opportunity to celebrate that in the way that they had imagined is tough. But I also, you know, I've seen so many cool videos and examples of folks who have like found really neat, innovative ways to to celebrate their loved ones with like drive-by graduation celebrations with neighbors and families, like driving by and delivering cake and doing all these sort of cool things to to still make it special for the person graduating and for the family. So I'm curious if you have any special graduation memories or have seen anything in the last couple of weeks uh, around graduation that you found particularly compelling or moving. So graduation memories. Um, so my graduation from college was a sort of whirlwind experience. It was quite a memory. And that's because I literally was studying abroad for the last two quarters. So like Stanford has a quarter system, not a semester system. So for the last two quarters of my senior year, I spent it sitting abroad in Cape Town and literally didn't have... You were abroad at the end of your senior year. Yeah. Like I wasn't really planning for this. Like I didn't plan ahead. But when I started my freshman year, I like took all of these courses. I just like really dove in, taking a lot of the more advanced courses and the requirements. And so like by the time I had finished the first quarter of senior year, I already like completed everything. So I was like, all right, I'm out this. And I just like left and went to Cape Town to like experience something completely different. And literally like flew in from Cape Town. And I think it was like the next day or the day after that, suddenly after six months in Cape Town, I'm like in this graduation ceremony and it's just a completely different world. And my life had been changed right by that experience. Like my trajectory, what I saw myself doing was less academic after that and more sort of activist and focused on sort of being a little bit more applied and on the ground. And yeah, so so that's like my graduation memory was just like going from six months abroad to suddenly you're doing the commencement and everybody's there, you know, family's there um, in a completely different world with a completely different outlook on life. Uh, and just reflecting on how different that must be from what students now are going through, where like you definitely probably weren't abroad or traveling in or definitely probably not convening to celebrate. But at the same time, I think we're seeing a lot of cool virtual things and opportunities for folks like the Obama commencement. You know, we just saw uh, on Twitter, Obama and a number of celebrities actually participating in commencement ceremonies across the country and how incredible it is to actually get access to folks like that, even if it is virtually uh, in a moment like this is huge. And so it's cool to see that, that folks are still participating, are still celebrating, are still finding new ways of celebrating together, even if it's not in person. And so I hope that next year we can actually do this in person again and, and folks can travel again. So much like you, Sam, I didn't really think through my class distribution in some ways. 
And I'll never forget, I needed a science credit. It's not called science at Bowdoin, but it was like some, essentially what it was, I needed a science credit. So my senior, I think senior spring, I took the science of the wind and I will never forget being like, I hope I graduate because I don't know nothing about the wind, how to measure the wind, what's going on with the wind. So every time I went to that class, I'm like, I just am praying that like, all I remember is a mole. M-O, like it, it, A mole is like the unit of measurement for the wind. I'm sure there's somebody smart listening to this and they're like, it's not what it is. But I passed that class by the grace of God. And graduation was cool. It was like <laughs> simple and fun. What I will say is that I've seen people be so creative on Zoom. I, I have friends who play bingo on Zoom across the country. I'm like, that's smart. And I just went to a baby shower on Zoom that was like legitimately a baby shower. It wasn't like, hey, all everybody get on Zoom. I'm like, we're going to say we're having a baby. It was like everybody's baby pictures. There was a game. There were all these games and like there was music and slides. Like it was very organized. So I'm excited to see how schools will prepare for this moment. Like, I think it'll be dope to see. I think it'll continue. And I do hope that young people get a chance to have get a chance to have a graduation, you know? Like, there is something special about you work so hard for something and your family gets to celebrate you alongside other people. It is a question about, like, when will we ever be alongside other people again? Because this looks like it is not letting up. But let's go to the news. So I brought this up a few weeks ago on the podcast when we were thinking about uh, what would happen on the continent of Africa in terms of coronavirus. And at that point, there was a lot of uncertainty as to whether the medical infrastructure of these countries would be able to handle the sort of things that we saw happening in other places. And although cases on the continent are increasing, many African countries are not actually seeing the exponential daily growth in confirmed cases or mortality that's been happening in the United States and Western Europe. And, you know, there are definitely exceptions like Egypt, Algeria, and Morocco, which alone account for about a third of the continent's 72,000 cases uh, as of this reading, and 51% of its almost 2,500 deaths. But in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, the 40-odd countries below the sand belt of the Sahara, the places where most of the folks you know, in the global epidemiology and public health world were worried about, there's a much more optimistic picture than people were prepared for. So, for example, Rwanda uh, in their first month went from two cases to 134, whereas if you look at Belgium, which is the same size, 12 million people, and is the former colonizer of Rwanda, it grew from two cases to 7,400, right? And so uh, you could look at Uganda, which only has 139 known cases, Ethiopia, which has 263 known cases, South Sudan, which has 203, Burundi, 27, Botswana, 24, the list goes on and on. And so, you know, you listen to those numbers and the most obvious question that people have is like, oh, well, is this a true picture of the disease and what's happening because do these countries have enough tests? Does Africa have enough tests to have an accurate measure and sense of what's happening? And in most countries, the answer is actually yes. They actually do have enough tests to do these. And another question people bring up, they're like, oh, Africa is hot and sunny and it's humid. So that makes a difference because sunlight, you know, some scientists have argued degrades the virus and maybe humidity slows it down. There have been some folks saying that. But the reality is that quite a bit of Africa, uh, including sub-Saharan Africa, isn't actually that humid. And the sun is like the sun all over the world. It's seasonal. In fact, in Several East African capital cities, 
it can get really, really cold during the day and at night. Uh, Brazil, meanwhile, has 200,000 cases of COVID-19, and it is very humid there. And Singapore, which just had a second wave of infections that sent the country back into lockdown, is also a place that has a, a great deal of humidity, which is to say humidity and the weather in and of itself doesn't seem to be enough to explain it. Some experts point to the fact that the continent is comparatively young compared to other places. And some folks talk about the potential existence of this quote, special African immunology, as the writer Gina Moore puts it in this article for The New Yorker, talking about how different diseases like malaria or their treatments act as these biological talismans against the new disease. And so I think it's tricky. You just have to be wary of falling into the trope, as kind of DeRay's alluded to before in a U.S. context, that like Black people have this thing that prevents them from getting sick, and thus we don't need to worry about them in the same way. So there might be something about conditions that folks are living in that make them less susceptible. But what we don't want is to fall into the trope of saying like, oh, Africans can't get this because they already have malaria or the malaria pills they take or whatever the case may be. The point of this is that part of the answer might just simply be that African governments are doing a better job of managing this crisis than our own government and many governments, even in Western Europe. So, for example, Rwandan officials responded to the first coronavirus cases by tracing, isolating, and testing folks who came into contact with those who might have been carrying, who were suspected of being carriers. Five days after the first cases were confirmed, commercial flights were halted. Two days later, the country was locked down, both to limit the spread of the disease and to ease this really difficult, tedious work of contact tracing. By the end of April, health workers had tested more than 20,000 people, conducted two random community surveys, which is a method of guarding against the bias of testing too narrowly, which might actually deflate case figures. Ethiopia, for example, completed a door-to-door -door survey of its capital and all the folks there in just three weeks, documenting the symptoms and travel history of its 5 million residents and testing anyone who was found to be at risk for the disease or symptomatic. South Africa, where health officials say early intervention staved off exponential transmission, sent 30,000 community health workers to survey roughly 15% of its population in less than a month, and it uncovered only two positive cases for every 1,000 people. Part of the reason that these countries might be responding so well is because of the medical infrastructure and public health infrastructure that they had already had built up following the Ebola crisis in each of their respective countries. Um, and it's not to say that every country in Africa is like getting it exactly right. There are definitely countries like Madagascar, Tanzania, where leaders are still downplaying the threat and contributing to the spread of conspiracy theories. But I think it's important to lift up this story of the governments in Africa acting swiftly, acting effectively to create the sort of public health response that would have prevented potentially tens of thousands of people from dying here in the United States, and that has prevented the exponential increase of death and cases, for that matter, in so many of these countries. So we're still learning a lot, but it is important to note that that is a very real part of why the cases have remained so low on the continent of Africa. I'm glad that we're having a conversation about how coronavirus is playing out in Africa, because this has been a moment, not only in Africa, but all across the world that has really interrogated some of the problematic notions that, you know, have been around for centuries around which countries are considered sort of uh, what they would call first world countries or third world countries. And this whole sort of taxonomy that is often heavily influenced, if not driven by white supremacist notions about which countries are quote unquote, stable, positive, good democracies in which countries are developing or less advanced. 
And what this virus is showing is that, in fact, those taxonomies, those classifications uh, are not actually bearing out when you're looking at the data. What you're seeing is that there are a set of countries across the world, some of which are in Africa, places like Senegal and Rwanda, as well as places like South Korea and Vietnam, many places that have actually been considered less advanced or less developed or somehow less than in the popular and political conversations around these countries. And yet their responses to coronavirus, uh, when it mattered most, when their governments had to put together a plan, had to mobilize the resources, often in the context of, of scarce resources, uh, and had to encourage people all across the country to do something in coordination, to socially distance, to you know, not take off their masks and just go outside and endanger other people. In fact, those governments have been highly competent at that, have succeeded. Uh, and many of the governments that have sort of traditionally or for a long time been considered, you know, to be competent or developed or advanced or whatever words they use have actually failed miserably. And that includes the United States. It also includes the UK. It includes places like Russia and, and other countries where cases are continuing to expand rapidly uh, that have now become sort of the hotspots of COVID cases across the world. That is to say that this virus is exposing which governments are competent, which responses have been affected and which have not. But it's also showing, as you said, Clint, that this is not a monolith, that Africa is not a monolith, that it is a constellation of many different nations, all with different strategies, different responses, and different outcomes. And sadly, within that distribution, the country that that I'm from, that my dad's from, Tanzania is not doing very well at all with regard to COVID. Uh, so, you know, so many of my, my family lives in Tanzania, in Dar es Salaam, which is the largest sort of port city there. You know, it is a, a place where the president of Tanzania, Magufuli, he's encouraged people to go uh, to church and sort of pray away the disease and knowing that, you know, obviously that's not a good strategy for preventing the disease. Uh, he has uh, endorsed and embraced conspiracy theories and sort of miracle cures that haven't been tested. Um, and he's also said that many of the tests that they've used are not good uh, or are not solid because they tested them on a variety of animals and came up positive. And like, I don't even know what the backstory for that is, but uh, it was sort of wild. So that's all to say that different governments are handling this differently. Um, there are models across the continent to look to places like Senegal, places like Rwanda, uh, places like South Africa, and places outside of the continent as well that we should all be learning from as we think about what comes next um, and what should we be doing to emulate in the United States uh, the best practices that are emerging from across the world. I think you're right. It is interesting to think about a continent and so many countries that have had to deal with HIV and scaling up public health responses, Ebola, scaling up public health responses. It's also a reminder that when we look at the numbers, the World Health Organization statistics from mid-May show that the entire continent has had only 72,000 total cases and less than 2,500 reported deaths across the 53 countries. Now, for context, as has been reported, that is less than all the cases reported in the last six months in mainland China or Massachusetts. So the country in Africa with the largest amount of cases is South Africa. And like Sam said, is that we see a varying response, but the continent has already had a lot of experience with understanding that this is a pandemic, right? So a problem in one country means that there's a problem in another country because of the way borders work, the way people travel. So the countries understand that like in moments like this, they actually, everybody has to work together because one country having an outbreak is just very quickly going to be another country having one. 
And that is a model uh, that is important to recognize and lift up. Clint already talked about the ways that people have tried to explain away the good management in so many countries by being like, oh, it's hot. That's why it's, it's not enough. It's not enough testing. The other thing that I thought was interesting was a reminder of the importance of supporting access to water in places that might not have access in some rural communities or other places where sanitation and water is just not readily available. Because as you know, we've been told to wash our hands and wash our hands. Hard to wash our hands if there's no water. So there are a lot of interesting uh, nonprofits out there in government agencies that are helping to make sure that people have access to water in places where there is not readily available water. And sort of as an aside, thinking about the strategies that were implemented in South Africa, where they went door to door surveying people and testing folks as a sort of mitigation strategy against coronavirus, it just strikes me that like we just had this massive census where we collected all this information from people all across the country in the U.S. And the conversation never uh, seemed to be joined with the conversation around coronavirus, where like maybe there were some things that we could have asked folks or leverage that survey to do um, that could have been helpful in actually addressing this crisis that we sort of missed the opportunity to do and other countries are showing can be done. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both Black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. With BetterHelp, visit BetterHelp.com people. 
today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Okay, so my news is about hackers and not the kind of hackers that have been causing a lot of problems over the past several years, especially hackers like those who hacked various emails and hacked governments, Russian hackers and others that have been causing a lot of problems politically uh, in the United States. But this article is actually about hackers that have decided to use their skills uh, for good rather than for evil. In particular, in Ohio, the state had begun the process of uh, trying to deny people unemployment benefits, saying that they refused to work. So basically, the state of Ohio created a website where you could report people who refused to go back on the job and make them ineligible for unemployment benefits. Obviously, this is not something that makes any sense at all in the context of a pandemic, uh, in the context where going back to work can be dangerous not only for yourself, but for a whole lot of people. But that is what the state of Ohio was encouraging employers to do, report employees for refusing to work. Well, enter hackers. A hacker who we still don't know who exactly this person is, or group, uh, they were able to flood the state of Ohio's website with junk data that made it impossible for them to process any of those reports alleging employees refused to work, which meant that the state now is giving up or at least suspending this website and this form and no longer using it to deny people their unemployment benefits. So this is fascinating because obviously hackers have been a huge issue and it has always seemed to be that the hackers are on the side of conservatives and white supremacists and people who are trying to cause immense harm. Um, This is an example of using those skills for good and I'm hopeful that this can be a model for anybody who is considering using their skills for bad to think twice and to consider that maybe uh, they could be a part in advancing justice rather than obstructing it. So Ohio is really interesting. In my home state of Maryland, about one in five Marylanders has filed for unemployment since uh, the outbreak began. And about a thousand people recently signed up at a hearing to talk about their challenges with the unemployment website because tens of thousands of people haven't been able to successfully complete the application for unemployment in Maryland. So it is frustrating. They know that they have to fix it. The state government is saying they're working hard, that it's overwhelmed the normal operations. And here's the thing is that so much of the way that government works is outside of the public perspective until more people need it. Part of our expectation of people who lead is not only that they can give cool speeches and inspire people, but the government is an apparatus that needs to be run to redistribute resources. That is like the purpose of government. The reason you pay taxes is to redistribute resources. The reason why we centralize some functions is that we believe that the resources can go out quicker and better in a centralized way in some ways. And you see that it was easy to praise a whole lot of people about their like press conferences, like in Maryland. And then all of a sudden you needed the apparatus to work and like they hadn't planned for it. They hadn't thought about it. And that's a failure of leadership. I'm hopeful that one of the things that voters will take from this as we go into successive elections is like, do you think that that person could lead in a crisis? Do you think that that person like has the foresight to sort of see issues before they arise? Because let me tell you, a lot of governors and mayors were not like even when lockdown happened, they weren't able to plan through all the things that were going to come up afterwards. And I'll just make one brief point. There's been some conversation about the fact that there are some people who are making more money 
from their unemployment checks than they were making in their jobs. And some people will use that as a way to suggest that we are giving people too much money via their unemployment checks, especially given the added $600 that Democrats got added onto the CARES Act for folks who are filing for unemployment. There were Republicans who were saying it doesn't make any sense to be paying people more to be on unemployment than they were making at their jobs. That logic is backwards, right? Like that logic fails to account for the fact that it is morally appalling and it is unacceptable that there are so many people, millions and millions and millions of people who are making so little money in their low-wage hourly jobs that an unemployment check would be even modestly better than what they were getting. So it's not, that doesn't say that like what the unemployment check reveals is that it is too much money in the hands of people. It it simply means that the low-wage work that people have been doing for years and that people will continue to do after this pandemic is over and that people are continuing to do during the pandemic is far too low, right? That like $15 an hour, the thing that Fight for 15 and that movement of union workers has been fighting for 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 years now, even $15, given the economic realities of our country and our world right now, is too low. Like that's not enough for somebody to pay for and sustain a family and to pay the mortgage and the rent. It's a reminder that we can use this opportunity to take a look at our social infrastructure and consider what we can be doing more of and not what is going to reinforce the already inequitable outcomes that people have been experiencing for a long time. My news is about some Pew data that came out, and it is specifically about Black Democratic voters. And it was interesting, and Sam probably already knew this, but I didn't, and I say that because Sam is, you know, the data guy and knows all this stuff. What the study says, and I quote, in 2019, about four in 10 black Democratic voters call themselves moderate, while smaller shares describe their views as liberal, which is about 29 percent, or conservative, 25 percent. By contrast, 37 percent of Hispanic and 55 percent of white Democratic voters identified as liberal. Now, that's one thing I want to talk about. And that is interesting to me, not because I think these positions are fixed amongst black people, but it does remind me that so much of like the noise that people produce on the internet or like the conversation that people engage in assumes that the majority of people identify as liberal, whatever that means to them. And like, that's just not the case that like most people identify as moderates and that matters as organizers and activists, because we have to meet people at that space and try and move them somewhere else. That what I've seen is that a lot of people have not yet imagined the new world or like a government that works or a healthcare for everybody. So we have to like help them imagine those things. And that's not necessarily their fault. But this was important to me to see those numbers because I think a lot of people would assume that like 70% of black people would identify as liberal because so many of the issues that would benefit black people, marginalized people, people in poverty, they are seen as liberal. But that doesn't mean that people identify that way, which was important to me. And the other thing that came out of this study that did align with what I thought was about how Black Democrats understood uh, racism. So what they note, and I quote, Black Democrats are more likely than other Democrats to say racism is a very big problem for the country. 79% of Black Democrats say this, compared with 70% of Hispanic Democrats and 52% of white Democrats. So that 52% is not surprising given where we are right now in the Trump presidency, but like the numbers really help frame things for me and I hope help frame a lot of what we need to be doing as activists and organizers to push people and meet them in one place to take them to another. So this was fascinating to me because it illustrates the fact that many of the constructs and terminology that we use to describe politics are 
shaped and diverge often by race. So even like, what does it mean to consider yourself liberal? The data here is actually conflicting. So if you assume that liberal means that you are slightly further to the left than somebody who describes himself as moderate, then in this data, it shows that 29% of Black Democratic or Democratic-leaning registered voters identify themselves as liberal compared to 55% of white Democratic or Democratic-leaning registered voters. So white Democrats are much more likely to call themselves liberal. But then if you assume that that means that they're further to the left, that actually is not what the data is suggesting. Because when you look at the question of whether a Democratic president should push hard on policy or work to find common ground with Republicans. So if we assume that like pushing hard on policies that Democrats want is a little bit further to the left uh, than sort of compromising on you know, probably more moderate policies with Republicans, it actually shows 67% of white Democrats believe that the president should find common ground with Republicans on policies, even if it means giving up things Democrats want, compared to 55% of black Democrats and 57% of uh, Latinx Democrats. So White Democrats are more likely to actually want a president that compromises with Republicans, but also more likely to identify themselves as liberal. So like those two things are actually quite different. And I think what this speaks to is the fact that many of the terms that we use to describe politics in America are describing a particular context um, that is often centering how white people view the world and view politics, and that for many Black voters, it is a different way of looking at politics than what we often ascribe to those traditional labels. So Sam, I'm really glad you made that point. And I think it's important that we understand the different ways that this language is interpreted by the people who are answering these surveys. And something that's also interesting is that I was reading this study by two Black researchers who wrote this book called Steadfast Democrats. And what they say they found is that part of the reason Black voters are so loyal to the Democratic Party is in part because of social pressure from other Black voters. So this is how they went about figuring it out. The first piece of evidence came from survey data collected by the 2012 American National Election Study. And in that survey, interviewers asked respondents face-to-face which party they identify with. The researchers then looked at the race of the interviewer and the race of the respondent to see if the Black respondents generally answered differently depending on who asked the question. They concluded that Black respondents were more likely to report they were a Democrat if they were with a Black interviewer, uh, this was 96.4% of the time, than with a non-Black interviewer, which was 83.9% of the time, or an online survey, which is 85% of the time. The researchers ran a separate study around the 2012 presidential election to test the same theory. Uh, They wanted to determine the likelihood that Black individuals would defect from the norm, i.e., in this case, supporting Democratic candidates, when offered money. So in this study, 106 Black students at a Midwest college were randomly assigned to one of three groups. Each one was given $10 by an interviewer and told that the money could be donated to either Mitt Romney or Barack Obama. Subjects were informed that they were not obligated to donate the money and that they could just decide to keep it if they wanted. But if they chose to give it to a candidate, $10 would be donated for every $1 they allocated. To be clear, this was just a ruse. It was part of the research. No money was actually donated to these candidates. But they were also told that they should make their decision once they entered a separate room away from the interviewer where there would be one contribution box for Romney and one for Obama. But not all the students were in the room alone. One group of students was, 
but two other groups were paired with an actor who pretended to be another participant. In each scenario, the actor was instructed to walk into the room and immediately say out loud that he or she was donating all their money to Obama, then make the donation. One group paired participants with a white actor, in the other, the actor was black. People in the first group, the loners, kept most of the money, donating on average $3.74 to the Obama campaign. In the group with the white actor, individuals donated $4.44 to the Obama campaign. And this amount was not statistically different from the scenario in which no actor was present. But in the third group, with a black actor, the average Obama contribution increased $6.85, which is a significant increase relative to the group where no actors were present. So in other words, it's another example of how black participants were less likely to pocket the money when another black person said he or she would be donating to Obama, and the participant felt pressure to comply with the expectation of behavior by someone who was similar to them. So this is really fascinating. I don't mean to suggest it is a definitive study. It is one study, but it certainly speaks to a very real phenomenon with regard to how humans behave with social pressure and identities and tribes. And, you know, we always talk about how Black people are uh, an incredibly heterogeneous group of people and how notions of conservative, moderate, liberal aren't neat categories that fit with the sort of dynamic nature of social and political views that Black people have. But Black people also often are deeply committed to one another. And there's a certain level of like loyalty and social pressure that is associated with that. And so it's interesting to look at this study and see the different ways that that manifests itself. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts.
Now my conversation with Marissa Bronderon. She is a law professor specializing in banking law at the University of California. And her book, The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap, has changed the way so many people think about inequity with regard to banks, has changed the way that people think about what's possible with the racial wealth gap. We discuss some of those things in this conversation and also what the wealth gap looks like in this moment and what we can do. Let's go. Marissa, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you so much for having me. The world has changed a lot since the last time we talked, which seems like forever ago. And I'm happy to have you on so that we can just learn a little bit more about how to think about the economic impact, how to think about uh, what we should be doing and talking about. So can you just start with like, how do we think about the CARES Act and explain sort of what that is to people? Like, is this the right direction? Is this off to a good start, not the best start? Like, what's the what? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one one thing to make clear here is that um, this crisis revealed some of like the deep inequalities that were already in our system and and kind of showed a couple of things. One is how a crisis hits everyone differently. So if you were wealthy and had a big buffer around you, you couldn't protect yourself from this. If you were not, if you had to rely on your work, if you did not have that buffer of wealth, you were going to get hit harder, um, especially for Black communities. I mean, this, the numbers are staggering as to how many more Black people have died of this crisis than whites. And I think this is um, something that we're going to have to deal with when we get back <laughs> to uh, quote unquote normal, because this is not, this has nothing to do with inherent racial traits. And, and I think what, what this has revealed is sort of the myth of colorblindness. Um, the fact that we kind of have this system of like, oh, race, does it matter? Well, look, we have this virus that is completely colorblind, that is not discriminating based on race, um, but you have so many more black who are vulnerable to death from this. And why is that? Because of a his- history of lack of access to health care, a history of you know, inequality in the numbers, a history of exclusion from employment, such that you have more care work, more people work um, concentrated in Black communities. And you have those underlying conditions, you know, those rates of higher diseases that affect Black communities because of this, this history of segregation. So, so I think that is something that, that we have to deal with and, and something that the CARES Act also uh, doesn't do, right? So the CARES Act is colorblind. It kind of sent everyone out uh, the same amount of money for the small businesses and the people. And and this also doesn't work because not everyone is going to be hit equally. What you saw immediately with the CARES Act, especially with the small business loan stuff, is that um, when you have a first-come, first-served program and you go through the banks, uh, the big companies, the the ones with more wealth are always going to get ahead in line and they're going to get more money. And that's exactly what happened. Again, black and brown businesses, um, small businesses, any small business did not get the funds. And this is just kind of the way that the system of inequality works and self-perpetuates. And so I think anytime we're talking about economic recovery or, or coming back, we can't go back to normal. Normal is the problem. Normal is the reason we're in this mess. Um, normal is the reason why 30 million people were unemployed within weeks and aren't going to be able to pay their rent and their food. Normal is the reason why we have a stock market that is booming while we're reaching a a point in unemployment that looks like Great Depression levels. That's not okay. Now, can you explain when people talk about the unemployment rate and people talk, they say things like, oh, it looks like the Great Depression. Can you help us understand what that means? I worry that people sort of see the numbers on TV. They see 16 million people. They see 20 million people file for unemployment. But like, what does that actually mean? 
there's going to be this other shoe that's going to drop. And it hasn't dropped yet. But what unemployment means individually is your life becomes much more unstable. So on an individual basis, how do you pay rent if you don't have a job? How do you buy food and all of that stuff? So that, those are the initial things. But then slowly as you know, 30 million people are unemployed, and then some staff are saying it could be like 20 to 30 percent of the population. What that means is it's going to be a massive hit to everything. Every single sector suffers. Um, so you have, you know, what economists call a supply-side depression and a demand-side depression. And demand-side depression is when people just stop spending. There isn't a, a demand for the product. Like, you know, gas is an example um, uh, that, that we're um, seeing right now. You're going to see less demand in just stuff. Right. Um, anything that runs on customers, anything that runs on people frequenting, you know, restaurants, bars, all of that stuff. And when you have a demand crisis, um, that usually is what happens when you have massive unemployment is that there's just this escalating sort of domino effect that hits every single sector all at once. And it could take a long time to recover from. So that's the massive sort of economic scale of it. The Great Depression stuff comes from how do you jumpstart an economy in a situation where actually we may not be able to go back to some of those earlier forms of the economy, right? So one is thinking about the environmental sustainability. Do we want to jumpstart the gas and oil industry, right? Do we want to jumpstart um, the consumer side stuff, right? Do we want to just keep, keep producing stuff and having waste um, like we did before? And if we don't, what does economic growth look like in a new landscape, right? We can't just keep measuring growth by how much crap we make and how much, you know, um, our factories are just like polluting, you know? So, so I think there's a couple of things. I think this unemployment is going to be a people crisis. I, I think we haven't quite seen yet the full effects of this because it's still relatively new. Um, we still have some of these stimulus checks coming, but it could get bad. I mean, I, I think there's reason to think that we could avoid that, but going into um, something like this could be pretty catastrophic for a lot of folks. Was the stimulus money, was it enough? Or is there something that needs to come next? We definitely need more. I mean, we also need, you know, guaranteed income. Um, we need basic liquidity for folks. No, it's not enough. I mean, we have $1,200 per person, 500 per child, um, you know, and then 600 in unemployment if you made those claims. At most, it's like $3,000. Average expenses in L.A., for example, in not the wealthy parts is about $8,500. In a random city, I picked a random city in Iowa, because I was looking through this, you know, just kind of like a middle America city, um, $6,500 to $7,000. Most people, that's how much they spend on essential services. So we're talking food, gas on their cars, rent, all of that stuff. That, this is not enough, right? $3,000, $4,000 a month, less for some folks. That's not going to be enough. And that's assuming that we're able to maintain that for a long time. And then add on top of that healthcare costs. We don't have universal health care, which is, you know, a, a tragedy going into this. And so there's there's going to be a lot of people who will have to maybe rely on, you know, payday lenders and pawn shops and other types of unsustainable debt to get through. And that will kind of kick the can down the road into a bigger debt crisis than we already have. 
And what is the role of banks in this moment? And I ask because there's a small business owner down the street from where I'm at right now, a dry cleaner, and I went to go help him. And he was like, you know, I had no clue that you had to get the application for the loan from your bank. And, you know, if you haven't been borrowing money from a bank, then you are sort of screwed in this moment. So what are banks doing? Could banks be doing something different? Is this disparately impacting people of color? Like, can you just help us understand? Yeah. So the second the CARES Act came out, like there was this fundamental structural problem, in my opinion, right? So the CARES Act says, there's a whole bunch of sections of the CARES Act. And the biggest ones were, you know, individual stimulus checks and small business aid and all of that stuff. All of that, according to the legislation, went through the bank. So if you want to get your stimulus check or if you want to get a small business loan, you have to go through the bank. That is a structural problem that we need to fix in our democracy. This is just the way things are done generally. But this is a history of, you know, it used to be that we would, banks had were the only institutions that had the technology to like clear checks. That is no longer the case. And we used to have laws that banks had to serve every community, right? We had, um, they had to be small. They had to be in every community. And now we've basically deregulated the banking sector. This is over the past, you know, 30, 40 years. Banks have merged. There's no banks in much of the rural South, much of the Midwest and the West. There aren't banks serving um, any low-income area. So 93% of the bank closures just since the last crisis have been in areas where um, the income is below $50,000. So middle-class, um, low, lower-middle income. So these banks have just deserted these populations. So now you have a program that says you have to have a bank account to get a stimulus check, or you have to have a bank if you're a small business and you're going to go apply. So what happened with the PPP, this is a small business um, loan program, is, you know, they said, okay, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, City, all these, you know, banks, you channel these funds, they're coming from Treasury, we're taking all the risk, we're giving you the money, you file the applications with your clients. And what they did was, of course, what banks always do, which is go with their most profitable clients. And because it was a first-come, first-serve, there was a limited pot of money. It was the big firms. You know, you saw Shake Shack and bigger restaurants, bigger companies got the money first, and a whole bunch of small businesses got left out. Um, in the second version, they tried to fix that. And what they did was actually say, like, okay, big banks, can't file applications within the first, like, nine hours or 10 hours that the bill goes into effect, giving sort of small banks a head start. But that, you know, that kind of at the margins fixes the problem. It gives them, like, a little bit of a head start. But small banks still don't serve a majority of small businesses in the country, and you still have to go through a bank. Um, so this is why I come back to my, you know, initial idea, which we talked about a long time ago on your podcast, is, you know, public banking. Make an option uh, for people, if the money's coming from the treasury and it's going to the people, send it directly. No reason to give banks a slice and allow them to choose customers. Just do it directly. You can do it through the post office, right? That was, that was something that I think if we had had in operation could have fixed this problem. Same with the stimulus checks, right? There's no reason for you to have to go to your tax refund place to get your stimulus check. You could have just gotten it at the post office if we'd had a functional system of postal banking. So there's talk that there'll be another stimulus bill or there'll be another thing in the works. What should we be fighting for to be in that one? You know, it's tough during a, a major crisis to make like massive structural changes. But like there's also like a don't waste the crisis mindset. You know, I mean, I think we have a terrible political party in the White House and the executive. But I think the things that you would want to fight for are big structural changes. Right. So you want to recognize 
some of the the things that this crisis has highlighted, which are massive problems. So, you know, the same stuff as universal health care, guaranteed floor of income for every American, every human. I think if we're talking about the racial wealth gap and some of the disparate effects for black communities, we have to be talking about a robust, you know, reparations or closing the wealth gap type scenario. We have to be talking about housing that is stable and secure and affordable for a whole bunch of people. Public banking, I think, is a massive issue that needs to be fixed. All of the things that working um, people struggle with. So, you know, minimum wage protections and employment protections, right? We, the fact that we had 30 million people within a matter of three weeks completely lose their job means that you know, that wouldn't have happened in the 1960s when you had these big companies and, and who employed tons of people and who basically guaranteed a whole bunch of uh, benefits and uh, job security to folks, you know, in return for their you know, work. And we don't have that. We have a gig economy. We have corporations that are way more um, interested in giving shareholder dividends and stock buybacks than they are in just paying their workers a fair amount and keeping their workers on. We've got a whole private equity industry that just lives on cutting work and making it more temporary and less stable. So all of that stuff are structural things that we know how to fix because we had a progressive tradition of really worrying about workers and families as opposed to businesses and shareholders. And so I think all of that stuff should be on the table. Like, go big, you know, go big and fix the systems because any sort of efforts that we do at the margins are going to be rolled back the next time we have a crisis, the next time we have an opportunistic right-wing government that comes in and, and takes all those things away. I mean, Steve Mnuchin, right, he is not someone who understands uh, the life of poor people, right? I mean, he says, like, something like $1,200, that should last, you know, like 10 weeks, he was saying about the stimulus, right? Like, Steve Mnuchin does not know what it is like to have to work for money, right? This is not... This is a guy not just born on third base, but born like right next to a home plate, right? This is not someone who, who has ever had to work for anything. And he is structuring economic policy. So we, we need more workers at the table designing policies that will help them and the majority of Americans. I mean, 80%, 90% of Americans are, you know, uh, workers as opposed to sort of, you know, people who just own empires of wealth. Can you help us contextualize the unemployment numbers one more time? So, like, you think about 30 million people unemployed. Can you tell us where that fits into some historical landscapes? And is it that we don't sort of feel it because we're all stuck inside, that, like, we can't see what it looks like when that many people are unemployed because everybody's just been inside? Or, like, why do you think there's, like, a, a little bit of a gap in people being really shocked by that? So the shock is that we've been operating with low unemployment numbers, so below 10%. And the fact that we... Some estimates have it at coming to well, not even just below 10%, like below 5%. Now, I want to make a caveat because these numbers don't actually reflect the state of the economy. But what some people are predicting are 20 to 30% unemployment. That is bigger than any um, unemployment that we have had in this country since the Great Depression. So the economic shock of that, I don't think we're prepared for. But the big caveat is that employment is just not what it, it used to be, right? So there's a whole bunch of people. So unemployment doesn't actually even capture the state of actual people's lives, right? So you can be employed at Walmart and you're considered a full-time employee, but you're still not making enough wages to survive on. So wages have been incredibly stagnant and declining compared to cost of living at the same time as executive salaries have been rising. So 
even, I mean, there's a whole bunch of us, you know, and other economists who have, who have been warning people, like, not to take the unemployment numbers that were so good for so long that seriously, because they didn't actually mean what they used to, which is that people had stable jobs and they could, you know, manage their lives. You had, before this crisis, a whole bunch of people with full employment who were not able to cover their expenses. So I actually think that unemployment numbers, as scary as they are, still undercapture the fact that even with full-time employment, there's a whole bunch of people struggling to pay all their bills each time they're due. Um, But add to that the economic insecurity of complete unemployment. And you're going to have a real problem um, with just basic shelter, food, uh, and all of that stuff. Now, there is a scenario where we do just come out of lockdown quickly and go back to work. And uh, if that happens, we will face the other side of it, which is, you know, what happens when you um, have a lot more infections and, and deaths for certain types of employers, right? Those who have to be in contact with lots of folks. Um, and that's something that those tensions are, are going to be there regardless. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Can you also talk about, I was reading this article that said that there were uh, people who are married to immigrants not getting checks. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, yeah. So if your um, spouse did not have a social security number, and this is not just undocumented immigrants, this is any immigrant who is not a you know, citizen or permanent resident doesn't have a social security number. This is a lot of folks, and those people were cut out of the stimulus funds. Like not just the immigrant, but their spouse. I mean, just, and, but the whole thing is just like the way that the Trump administration is just punitive toward immigrants. It is punitive toward people who are poor. Right? The first version of the CARES Act actually gave people that were low-income folks half the money than the middle-class folks. Right? Um, they don't allow anyone who's had a felony or a crime of, quote, moral turpitude anytime to get a small business loan. So, I mean, these are just absurd Punishment. Anyone working in the adult industry was disqualified from getting a small business loan, right? So they're saying, you know, if you ever committed a crime, you will die, <laughs> right? Starve. Um, we would rather punish you again for a crime that you've already served your time for, even though obviously these have massive injustices and racially discriminatory effects. You know, we were going to punish you again and again and again. We're going to take your vote and all that stuff. And this is this is just the structure of uh, the morality of the way that we deal with benefits in this country. Um, it is kind of rooted in in racism. It is rooted in moral judgments against all sorts of folks, but especially you know immigrants, black folks, and the poor. You know, there's a sense that like you chose to be poor, and we're going to punish you for your bad choices. It is nonsensical, but it's pervasive. I wanted to ask you too, there are a lot of people, so when you say things like, or when we talk about like the banks were in charge of distributing the money, there are a lot of people who can't imagine anything but banks doing that, right? Because like, that's what banks should do. Was there an alternative to all this money being funneled through banks? Like, what would an alternative to that even look like? An alternative would be a public bank. I mean, you don't, there's nothing magical about the banks doing this. The Treasury set up the application process They set up the underwriting, which is, you know, what banks do that is good is underwriting. So, you know, two people come in and they say, okay, well, um, this person's a good risk, this person's a bad risk, and I'm going to determine the interest rate. That is not an issue with a lot of stuff in our credit market right now, right? So if the government is saying these are the standards for, let's say, a mortgage or student loan, 
these are the standards for PPP loan. In other words, there's no underwriting for you to do. If someone comes in and has these three qualifications, we will give them this money. So the money's coming from the government. Um, they are taking on the risk. So literally the only thing the bank is doing, the only risk the bank is taking is filing the application. So in that situation, all we're doing is just like giving money to the banks for absolutely no work. We don't need to do that. So the other option would be to just do it directly. Treasury has the functionality. The SBA could do it. Um, look at, you know, the student lending. 90% of that comes from the government. Now, there's problems with that system, but you can actually get your Pell Grant, right, um, directly from the Department of Education. There's a whole bunch of places. VA, you know, Treasury sending the SSA, uh, the Social Security um, benefits, um, EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit Funds. Lots of times the government sends it directly. Um, and so these are the things that we need to be thinking about, especially as banks are no longer in the business of actually serving regular customers. They're more in the business of, you know, uh, proprietary trading, which is like the stock market stuff that they do. They're in the business of getting bigger, doing bigger deals. Banks no longer will lend you a small amount of money uh, to start a a business or to even just, you know, uh, have cash when you need it. They are more looking for high net worth clients because that's where the money is. And what's happening with Wall Street right now? Is Wall Street freaking out? Is Wall Street secretly benefiting from this? Like, you know, I feel like one of the things that's happening is that the only thing playing in the news is the medical part of what's happening with coronavirus. So there's a part of like the impact on Wall Street and stuff that I don't even, I haven't even seen mentioned. Do you know what's going on there? What's going on on Wall Street is uh, the stock market is doing quite well. It's recovered uh, quite a bit, not to initial stuff, but it's it's kind of, increasing and back to almost pre-corona levels. Not not exactly there, but that's the trend. And part of it is that Wall Street is not tied into the rest of the economy. Wall Street is its own thing. The trading counterparties are with other banks, and there's still a lot of capital sloshing around. There's still deals to be made. Now, there's some deals falling apart, right? There's a bunch of mergers that you know no longer are going to happen, but that doesn't affect you or me. I mean, it's just a Wall Street thing. The stocks are coming back, and you know different things are shifting, right? So you know you, maybe you were in oil and now you're in Zoom, maybe you're, you know, shifting your portfolio, but the money is still there. The capital is still there. A lot of traders are having to go back to work, right? There was all of these, you know, memos that were leaked from, you know, JP Morgan and Bank of America where the culture was not to stay at home, right? Like everyone was back at the office or if you weren't at the office, you were feeling guilty and maybe, you know, your job was being threatened. And and so that, there is this and pressure still on a lot of traders to come back in. There's a lot also more people at home trading. Uh, I've been reading that there's a lot more, you know, gambling establishments have shut down and other, sort of, you know, industries are, are not available for just kind of day traders. They're going to the stock market. So there's a lot of activity there that wasn't there before. There's wealth management going on. There's all sorts of money stuff that is still happening. Um, so, so I think that uh, that economy is actually doing just fine because it really is about just kind of moving money around and, and making bets on, on industries that are here or there. They're not super connected, though, with average people, right? Um, the fact that Walmart stock is uh, rising has nothing to do with how many employees they're going to be hiring. There's, there's a tangential benefit. Walmart is maybe more directly related than, say, uh, some other big tech company. A lot of these tech companies don't even have employees, right? A lot of the stock market is tech 
unicorns that never operated with a lot of staff anyway. So, you know, in a way, uh, not that much has changed. Um, there was a spooky thing that, you know, happened and, and, and a bunch of people sold, but um, it seems like it's coming back. I wanted to also talk to you about the post office. So when we first talked, we spoke about postal banking. It seems like Trump is trying to defund the post office. I don't know if this is like a threat. I don't know if this is like posturing just because he knows it'll make the news. Or is there even a possibility that the post office disappears and and gets broken up and sold into pieces? Like, what's going on with the post office? Oh, yeah. I mean, there is definitely a threat to the post office. It's not new. This has been a GOP goal since at least the 1970s, um, certainly since um, the 2006 Act that kind of um, prohibited the post office from doing anything new and basically made it economically vulnerable by forcing it to pre-fund its pensions for 75 years in 2006 through a, a GOP bill that was all politics. And the politics of it is that it wants to privatize the post office. Can you explain what it means to pre-fund the pension for 75 years? Yeah, so uh, companies, uh, you know, uh, the post office has a, a very healthy unionized labor force. Um, so you, le- uh, letter carriers, there's two big unions, the letter carriers and the um, postal workers, uh, they are middle-class jobs and they have pensions. So if you work at the post office for a certain amount of time, you get a pension into old age. And what most companies do is that they, they manage their pension liabilities in the future with current revenue, right? Every company does this. And government agencies do too, right? So if you work for a certain hospital or you know, teacher or whatever, you get a pension. And so that pension fund ends up being, uh, you know, a thing that you can use for investments. And, and, and there's a whole bunch of pension funds that um, end up, you know, just managing themselves uh, over time. And that's what the post office was doing just fine in 2006. And the effort to privatize it had preceded that. But what the Republicans got into law is that right immediately, the post office had to put aside a big pot of money. So every pension going forward for 75 years of all of their employees had to be in that pot of money. So not that, you know, in 75 years, you have to pay it out. And then the, the justification they used was, well, we don't know if you'll have this money and we don't want to be liable for it. So you have to put this money away. Meanwhile, I mean, the post office had always been self-sustaining. There was no taxpayer funds at all being used for the post office at that time or ever. The post office is a standalone agency. It is self-sufficient um, and all the profits go back into treasury. There had not been a problem. And so at that moment in 2006, the post office had a $6 billion shortfall immediately because of that requirement, which again, had not been put on any other agency or any other company. But it was a ploy to make the post office look like it was bleeding money and to like start the path toward privatizing the post office and selling it off in parts, right? Making it kind of make, making it have money, right? This is what they did with Fannie Mae, um, Freddie Mac. You know, it's a company that is public and then you make it private. After that, they also put in that bill that the post office can't add any new products. So you can't add revenue at all, right? And this is um, antithetical to the history of the post office. The post office has always adapted and added new products depending on the times, right? So they added the Pony Express and they added um, airmail and they added postal banking, right? Um, postal savings um, stamps, bonds, all sorts of stuff. And in 2006, as the internet revolution was expanding, they're like, they saying you can't do anything new to make money, right? So this 
this, it was like a one-two punch, and the post office has yet to recover. They've had to cut costs. They've had to close down places. They've had to lay off um, staff. And right now, as every industry is struggling, um, so is the post office. Yet the post office is an essential service, especially to a whole bunch of Americans that don't live in populous areas that are served by UPS and FedEx and and Amazon. And so one of the things that the post office could have done to add revenue over the past 10 years is postal banking, right? A simple checking account. So they're not allowed to as of this um, legislation. So what Trump has said is that he will, you know, he wants to privatize. He's not going to bail them out. And this is, these are GOP talking points. I don't know how serious Trump himself is. I know that the GOP has been serious um, for some time now about privatizing it. You know, the the people lobbying for this are, of course, the same um, types of people who would stand to benefit if the post office goes private, you know, so other competitors like UPS, like FedEx, you've seen payday lenders oppose postal banking, you see all sorts of banks that don't want the post office to come on their turf, and they would come in and buy some of the routes, but it would be such a tragedy. I don't want that to be lost here. It would be a tragedy to lose the post office. I mean, the post office was here before we had a constitution. This was, you know, created by Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. And it was the heart of our democracy because what the founding fathers said is that the post office will serve every single community regardless of cost. So this is why we have, you know, zip codes that connect us. This is why we have roads to certain places. This is why you had east-west expansion and, and, um, and news going from D.C. out to the hinterlands because the post office decided to subsidize this. And a lot of other countries took our post office and modeled theirs after it because it was so successful. And over time, there were many, many times over the, the you know, hundreds of years of, of postal history where the model was under threat, right? Where they're like, oh, well, we have railroads. We don't need a post office anymore. But what the post office was able to do is put their stuff on the railroad, right? Or to, to do air uh, mail. Um, the plane, you know, Charles Lindbergh and, and a lot of the famous aviators in our country were doing their routes through the post office at first. Um, air mail was something that the post office did during World War II, so soldiers could send their checks back home. Um, and, you know, we did postal savings bonds that helped with the Great Depression debt. So the post office has been through a lot of um, change, but it has always maintained that mission of serving every community, uh, regardless of cost. And so I think it would be a real loss to the American system to see it go private. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Posse of the People. Learned a lot, and uh, hopefully when we come back, we'll talk about all the big wins that we got. Yeah. <laughs> yes, hopefully. <laughs> thanks, Deray. It's always great to talk to you, truly. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Posse of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. 
Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.